0: Hi, I'm location portrait photographer Robert Seal, and you're listening to LightSource.
1: And welcome back to episode 33 of LightSource, the official podcast of studiolighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment
2: and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed hidden exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockPhoto.com. On today's episode, we are going to be interviewing Robert Sale. He is a Houston-based photographer, specializes in editorial, corporate, and advertising portraiture. Uh, He's been a photographer for magazines such as Texas Monthly, Sports Illustrated, Slam, Barron's, Business Week, and has over 200 covers for the Sporting News. And uh, when we did the interview, he was actually a staff photographer for the Sporting News. However, yeah. Bill got an email. That's
1: right. I received an email from Robert, which said that he has left his job with the paper that he's worked at for 10 and a half years, and he's actually doing freelance work. So I wanted to congratulate Robert, and this interview will kick off his new career.
2: Yeah, fantastic. So when in the uh, Flickr group forum, uh, if you guys have any words of encouragement or things like that for Robert, feel free to post them when we uh, post the link for the details about the show on there. Yeah, and speaking of the Fick- Flickr group, <laughs> sound like a curse word there. Speaking of, the, <laughs> speaking of
1: the Flickr group, we're actually excited to say that we broke 1,000 members, so that's really cool.
2: That is really cool. We know we have more than 1,000 listeners, so I, I, we know that not all of you guys are going into the Flickr group. That's right.
1: I was excited, but now I'm a little upset, because that means all those people that listen aren't checking out the Flickr group. Too many passive guys out there. Passive. That's right. Timid. <laughs> Timid. Meek. <laughs>
2: do, oh, do we want to get into that one?
1: Yeah, let's get into that, into that for a second or two. We collect surveys from our listeners, and if you haven't filled out our survey, check out the link on net and give us your opinion about the show. Uh, this past month, we got a couple of interesting ones. Everybody likes to tell us what they like and don't like about the show. And, and we'd be sure to take all of those comments personally, too. That's right. We take them very seriously, and we also have a little bit of fun with them. And we got a couple of, I don't know, what, how would you classify
2: those remarks? Well, the one that you had sent me the IM and said, um, somebody said you're self-centered. And and I was like, uh, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said you were self-centered and I am meek. So, I don't yeah. know what that's all about. But see, I agreed with you on the on the self-centered thing because <laughs> right. and and you tried to defend me, you know, up and down saying, "You're not self-centered." And and then you told my wife about it and she said, "Yeah." And then she lectured me for probably not letting you talk. <laughs> that's probably a decent assessment of the comment at least but we said so, so the point is I, I guess you don't
1: know me as well as as our listeners do yeah they they're they're definitely more attuned to your personality <laughs> they're spot on just like my wife <laughs> says which is interesting but uh we really do appreciate the feedback and it, it's fun to read even the even the ones that say that we sound like a, a saturday night live skit
2: and not the good one either the, the one that imitates the npr group
1: yeah so we'll try to not be so meek and self-centered for you guys as we go forward and try to <laughs>
2: curb that. And, and one other comment that, that was mentioned in the group and in, in the Flickr group and on the survey as well as the, the Nikon Canon jokes, and and they are just jokes, really. I mean, we, we both realize that... I've always said that the my favorite camera is the one that's in my hands at the time you asked me the question.
1: Yeah, uh, I kind of agree. <laughs> They said that we were being a little childish in the way that we were bantering back and forth about Nikon and Canon. So I'm make- just going to keep it to myself that Nikon's better than Canon.
2: Yeah, I'll just elbow you and make the comments. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll just go, come on, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that image I got. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they both both camera lines are are
1: great cameras. We know that. We both have shot bo- with both of them for a while. So we and- just like to have a little fun. So loosen up a little bit.
2: <laughs> well... Speaking of um, going out and shooting together, we had a cool opportunity to uh, get out the other week and take some of our lighting equipment outdoors for an early morning shoot with a band. Yeah, that was interesting. We learned a lot. Yeah. Um, one thing we learned is uh, get there early, much, much earlier than your models, and try and, uh, if you're working with a band, forget about, you know, before 7 o'clock. Yeah, exactly. They weren't. it's not going to happen. <laughs>
1: We had some beautiful light, and we wanted to shoot between 7 and 7.30 when there was a great fog on the river, and the sun was just filling the sky with color,
2: and there was no way they were waking up. <laughs> we had a really great background set up. It was, you know, the sunrise was painting this wall with a, a wonderful orange light, and it had just rained the night before, so everything was nice and shiny and reflective, and by the time we got the lighting set up and the models there and in position, I looked at the wall and I was like, oh, it's boring concrete now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another thing I learned about
1: was, uh, was wind. <laughs> <'Cause
2: laughs> you think I'm, we would have learned that one from the last time we went outside. Yeah, shot, but... I
1: mean, it's just, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't shoot outside very much with large light modifiers. Yeah, I think that was the ticket.
2: Is yeah. we, were using, we were shooting with that really, really large Photoflex Octodome. And it that thing is like a sail, pretty much is a sail. <laughs> so you want to have your your light stands weight
1: down or have some good assistance nearby because uh, you can lose your equipment
2: that way. The good news is though, uh, we had two lights that took headers into the ground from the wind. Ouch! And uh, and one of them was the Alien B ring flash with a modifier with the moon unit on it and uh that made a nice little cushion for, <laughs> for when it hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the good news a...
1: is it they both kept firing.
2: So yeah, everything you know, is fine. It wasn't
1: that bad. We caught most of them.
2: Yeah, we were we were very fortunate though with that. So um but it is a good
1: lesson to learn. If you're doing yeah. outdoor photography with your lighting equipment, take sandbags or take some kind of weights for your light stands. Just make sure that you have something to secure them with
2: because that's a good way of uh damaging your stuff. After that shoot, I was actually listening to the Michael Muller interview again. And uh, I was thinking about that shoot that we did, and I remember him saying about using his assistants as portable C-stands. And I was thinking, hmm, they wouldn't have blown over then. No, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously. Especially
1: with a a band, it it would be nice to have a couple of different assistants, one to help pose, one to hold flags, and one to line lights up. So that definitely makes sense, everything that he said about being able to shoot fast. He must have a team of guys, and they just... They know what their job is and they get it
2: done. Yeah, this is true, and they've done it enough too. So I mean, right. they, he knows what he's doing with it.
1: And once again, we were a little bit frustrated by not having our wireless trigger system. Yeah, we got to get on that. So that we was definitely uh, gotta get on that. <laughs> that's that's definitely high on the list of things that we want to do next with our studio photography. Anyway,
2: I think we need to do that before we do that that wedding shoot that we were talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: That sounds so, pretty cool. So yeah, lots of fun stuff going on. Yeah. And then I have a shoot going on this weekend. I'm actually going to travel down to Philly and uh, meet up with Andrea, a fellow photographer on iStock Photo, and we're going to shoot up a good session. Hopefully, yeah, and, I'm um, very jealous. I know. I know. You guys are going to be in her studio, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, we got some more models that have confirmed for it, so it's gonna, great. Well, you know, it's always an open invite for you, Bill. I I hear you. I, okay. I had to say that because I didn't realize that you know there are lots of people listening to this and didn't want you know all. You know, 100,000 of you guys out there to just show up. (laughs) Right. That might be a little hectic. Yeah. We might have to do some cycling there.
1: 1,000 photographers and like three models could be a bad mix. You get a lot of coverage. Talk about sharing sync cords. (laughs) (laughs) That could get confusing. It could get confusing. Speaking of sync cords, we had a chance to uh, actually be on the other side of the interview for
2: once this week. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, How's that speaking of sync cords? It's not, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. <laughs> <than that.
1: laughs> I was going to say it's a very meek transition. Well, we we talked about sync chords <laughs> on that and during the interview. That counts. Yes, this is true. That's good enough. Okay.
2: Speaking of sync chords, the digital photography show. Yes, the digital photography show. It's at the uh, podcast network. It's uh digifoto dot network dot com. It's uh, hosted by Scott Sherman and Michael Stein. And they do a podcast about photography and talk about all kinds of different uh, different things. They've interviewed people like uh, Scott Kelby, Rick Salmon, and a whole host of others. And they've added us to their list. It was really uh, odd being on the other side of the interview for a time. Yeah, it was strange. I mean, I was, like, nervous and I was afraid I was sounding like a, like a fool. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think you sounded like a fool. I was thinking that it's, uh, I thought we finished up and was like, wow. it's was like, we really sounded good and knew what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, I think it went well. I was just kidding, but I do have some more, some new sympathy for the guys that we that we interview
2: for an hour at a time. <laughs> yeah, that is true. But it was It was nice, just actually, uh, just casually talking. I, I think it may have taught us a little something about our interviews as well. We might try and make them a little more informal or just open ended discussions or something like that. Right. We'll have to give that a shot. We're probably boring everyone now, aren't we? Yeah, we're we're uh, back to the NPR thing. <laughs> Well, I before we get into the interview, I have a question for you, Bill. I saw this posted on photoshopnews.com, and they linked out to a blog called The Online Photographer. So they had a post on their blog this week on The Online Photographer, and it's called To Delete or Not, That Is the Question. kind of got me thinking about uh, a couple things that I had heard on some other podcasts as well, where they were talking about digital archival and you know, how do you store images. Do you uh, do a lot of deleting in-camera? Do you do a lot of editing when you get back to your computer, or do you just store everything and just buy new hard drives? Wow, yeah, that's a that's a great question.
1: I I think that I've changed a little bit in the more recent years because at first I just saved absolutely everything.
2: That's exactly what like, I've what I've been doing.
1: Like bad photos, you know. Now I think if I look at the camera during a shoot or after a shoot, immediately after a shoot, and I can tell that it's like very blurry are very underexposed, and I know it's going to be hard to salvage as a real photo, especially in a studio setting. I'm real picky. I'll bag it. Like, I'll delete it right on the camera. One exception to that, though, is when I'm in a studio with, like, families, because, especially with children, because, uh, to be honest, sometimes you have to combine more than one photo to get everybody <laughs> smiling and looking at you and stuff like that. Because I mean, it's just a reality that you, it's almost impossible to get, like, more than three kids to smile at the same exact time and and you only have you know five or six different chances to get a shot of all of of them so i barely delete anything when i'm shooting children just in case you never know
2: well that's that's kind of the the way that i deal with things as well but the one podcast that i was listening to brought me to questioning that and they were talking about, um, for instance, the famous Monica Lewinsky photo where she was shaking hands with Bill Clinton in a crowd. That was an event where a couple of photographers had captured that image. And it was a non-image at the time. It right. was just, you know, Bill Clinton's out shaking hands. It wasn't until the scandal erupted that, you know, people had said, oh, well, they were at this such and such together. And a couple of these photographers are like, I was there that day. So they start going back to their collection, and they're going through a bunch of these. Well, the one guy had said, well, these these are digital. And he's like, well, you know, these aren't really good shots, or, you know, there's nothing really there. So he just kind of trashed them. Wow. And the other guy was a film photographer. At least I think I have this story right. So I'm sure everyone's going to post on the Flickr group that I was completely wrong, but this is the way I remember it. (laughs) So the film photographer, he had all of his slides, you know, filed and everything so he went to them and he goes oh yeah here's everything that I shot that day and he's just kind of going through and it's like oh there's a shot there's one that it had no context at the time as an interesting photo and in fact the composition wasn't that you know it wasn't an outstandingly composed photo but it wasn't until it had the context of history that that became a very sought after image because that image didn't exist Right.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So, are you
2: are you kind of thinking that you're not going to delete anything from that one? Um, studio stuff. I'm probably going to still go through and and trash the stuff that is completely unusable. But it's definitely going to get me thinking about you know things that I shoot. Maybe it's something that I shoot at work, of coworkers or in a, or an event or something like that where it's um there's possibly a lot of different people in the photo and maybe they're not a key person in the photo or it's just it's I'm probably gonna tend to keep a lot of that other stuff because given the context of history they might become relevant again for whatever reason yeah even if it's just relevant to you I mean I've
1: maybe some of our listeners have experienced this but you you ever look through photos that you took you know five six ten years ago and they're not really anything special but it takes you back to that time when you took the photo and so it has value just for the sentimental value of nothing else So, uh, I do plan to try to keep as many as I can, but if it's plainly, you know, very blurry or not, not very viewable,
2: I don't know. I'll probably think about that a little bit more though. Yeah, it's definitely something that's getting me thinking a bit more. And, um, in this particular post that I'm looking at, they talk about like the, they're talking about people who delete on the street, you know, before they ever get back to a PC. And then the question is, do you delete it then or do you delete when you get back to a full screen? And that's my personal opinion. Unless it's something that I can see that is horribly out of focus from the LCD screen or completely no exposure there, then I, I'll i just leave it in the camera and figure I can delete it after the fact. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, unless you're
1: filling up a card or you're having problems or something like that, there, there's really no reason other than convenience
2: to not wait until you get back to the office. Something to think about. Certainly, and, and the other thing too is if you're if you're editing while you're in the field, you're not focusing on the shoot. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's hard to resist looking at the at the not looking at the LCD.
1: But uh there are times when I try to force myself to stay focused on the pose or stay focused on the the lighting, rather than making sure that I got the image
2: that I have. I'll use I'll I'll chimp while I'm looking at a at a scene get an idea of what's going on with it and make sure that my exposure looks good. Typically lately I've been shooting in manual mode. So you know, I'll make sure that I have my exposure ready for a scene and once once I see that histogram on the back is okay, then I will try not to chimp. Just until start after shooting. just start shooting and I kinda of focus on that on the view screen and I keep my eye focused on the action on what's going on. Because yeah. you you never know when someone's gonna break from a pose or just They'll give that slight relaxation or something that'll that'll tweak and change and you know if you're looking at the back of your screen you lose that moment in time that you'll never get you may never get again that's a good point, yeah, absolutely yeah, so that's an interesting little discussion I thought might be good to put out there and uh giving our listeners something to ponder. Yeah, maybe it's something that you guys want to talk about on the website a little bit, but it's something that crossed my mind. And, uh, yeah, this is let us know if you like this little segment, because if it is, maybe we'll try and uh, throw a couple more out there for you. Good times. So, we'll get into this interview with Robert Sale, and he'll be talking about doing celebrity photos with sports figures and dramatic lighting and talking about exposure and all kinds of stuff. And again, we wish Robert good luck in his new career as a freelancer. And on this edition of The Light Source tonight, we have with us Robert Sale, uh, one of the favorites listed in the Flickr discussion group. Robert is a Houston-based photographer, specializes in editorial, corporate, and advertising portraiture. Uh, You have some amazing work, I must say. I love your your outdoor lighting and has a a nice drama to it. So thanks for being on the show with us, Robert. Thank you. Uh, Where did you pick up the uh, interest in photography?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I was taking pictures in high school, and then my parents wanted me to be an architect, so I took off and uh, tried to do that physics for engineering majors kind of derailed that plan and uh ended up you know always liking photography and working at the uh college newspaper and yearbook and all that and just kind of stuck with it and then kind of got the newspaper bug and working as a photojournalist and all that got my first internship after college and just kind of went from there
1: once you got out of college and and you interned what got you into sports photography is that what your primary interest is would you say
0: no, it really wasn't. Uh, I am the son of a coach, so you know, grew up in a athletic family and all that kind of stuff, and played football and everything. You have to play football if you're from Texas. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> did all that kind of stuff, but you know, that wasn't the primary focus. I think in college, I really thought of myself as becoming a, a corporate photographer, an annual report guy. I really liked Jay Mizell and Ernst Haas. and there was a, a Houston photographer back then named Steve Brady and and uh, Arthur Meyerson, who's still around and People like that were the ones that I really looked up to. I think the sports thing, I, I ended up at the Houston Post, my second newspaper job. Ended up doing a lot of sports and then also a lot of portraits and fashion and food and studio stuff and things like that, too. So, And then the Houston Post shut down in 1995 and was bought by the other paper in town and I became uh, unemployed at that point. (laughs) I uh, freelanced for a while, and I ended up working part-time at the Austin newspaper, the Austin American Statesman, and an opening came along on the MPPA Job Bank. That's National Press Photographers Job Bank, and and I ended up applying for a job at the Sporting News. It's uh, a hundred-and-something-year-old publication, oldest sports magazine, and and, uh, they do a lot of Portraits for covers, and then you also get to go cover the Super Bowl and World Series and all that kind of stuff, and it sounded pretty fun. So that is cool. I I ended up there.
1: From your portfolio, it looks like a lot of the work that you do in terms of portraits, even is is with sports celebrities and and coaches and that sort of thing. Is that still something that you're very active in and interested in?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, it's always fun doing those, and and there's a comfort level there because I've done you know lots of those. So. That's always fun. But I enjoy, you know, doing the corporate stuff where somebody might call me to go shoot a CEO or a politician or something else. I enjoy all sorts of anything with a challenge is fun. So,
1: Just from the nature of your subjects, I guess you find yourself on location a lot. And your your images are just outstanding when it comes to the lighting. What's your secret to location lighting? Are, are you a portable strobe guy or do you take a lot of large mono lights and that sort of thing with you when you go? Or how does that work?
0: I've done it different ways. I guess the first four years I was with the Sporting News, I used nothing but Lumidynes, believe it or not. Nice. And I used to gang like three of them together inside the same giant softbox and turn them all down to try to get enough, short enough flash duration <laughs> to stop people and stuff like that. So there were all sorts of uh, rigging things and, and tricks to try to make that work. And I got kind of frustrated with it after a while and finally just broke down and said, okay, I'm going to... Get some big light stands and some regular lights and quit trying to, you know, I had everything to where it fit in a tiny little lightwear case. And the other issue with batteries with sports celebrities and things like that is recycle time. And back then we were shooting Hasselblad, and, and every time you stop to change a back or to wait for a strobe to recycle, you're risking a prima donna celebrity walking away from the shoot. So keeping them interested, keeping the strobe popping every one and a half seconds, two seconds is, is really important to get lots of stuff out of it. So I switched to Dynalite and started using their stuff as far as, sometimes it's battery, sometimes it's plugged into the wall. I always like to plug in when I can. But some of the locations, if you're in the middle of a cornfield in Nebraska or something, you obviously can't do that. And I've used the Dynalite inverter, the 1100 watt second inverter that they make now. Okay. I've used, I have a Profoto 7B I use sometimes, you know, whatever it takes to get it done. I mean, a lot of it, it may look like it's in the middle of nowhere, but you're actually at a baseball facility and you're able to run 150 feet of cord and still plug in, you know.
2: Gotcha. So when you're on the road with equipment and things like that, what sorts of modifiers do you use on the on the lights and things like that?
0: I carry all kinds of stuff. Uh, as far as softboxes go, I have Plume softboxes. I'm really kind of a snob about those. I like those a lot. I use a Plume hex oval a lot which is a really large six-sided thing different than an octobank it it sets up like a regular softbox like a six-sided softbox and an octobank is more you guys have seen it it's more like an umbrella type assembly and i just i love the light that it gives out but they're a little bit hard to travel with and they're a little bit fragile when you're out in the wind and stuff so the the plume hex oval seems to work better for me the light faces forward it doesn't face backwards like an octobank does also so um it has baffles in it that you put inside it, and that keeps the light spread all around. And I always use, instead of just the standard Dynalite you know, 2040 heads that have a built-in reflector, I always try to use the bigger, the 4040 40 or 4080, the big bare bulb heads, so that the light spreads around and inside the softbox good. Uh, other than that, a couple of other Plume softboxes. I have some small strip banks. I use uh, a three-degree grid a lot on just a regular light to really bring it down on somebody's face. Than a foil, you know, barn doors. Yeah, use all sorts, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever you need to use, you know.
2: Real quickly, I mean, we hear a lot of different photographers talking about different preferences of different equipment. Now, you said that you're a big fan of the plumes. Aside from the shape of the the modifier,
0: mm-hmm.
2: is there anything in particular about the plumes that really stand out over other ones that you've used?
0: Yeah, they're they're shallower than Chimera's or Photoflexes or whatever. I like the material they're made out of. They just feel really solid. Some of the nicer Chimeras are actually made out of very similar stuff now, and they feel about the same. But, you know, I just was really partial to them. And they used to make, I wish Gary Register would bring these back. He's the guy that runs Plume. But they used to make something called a World Bank. It had collapsible rods. And they had a World Bank 100. It was like 30 inches by 40 inches, you know, perfect little medium-sized softbox. And the rods came apart just like tent poles. And it folded down to like 20 inches. I used to carry this thing in a lightwear case with... A couple of those tiny little bogan stands and my lumadines and i could light pretty much anything with that it was wonderful that's cool every every newspaper photographer ought to have one of those soft boxes and he, qu- he quit making them for some crazy reason i keep trying to talk him into making them again but <laughs> maybe your listeners can get him on board
2: <laughs> there we go well we'll start a petition and we'll, we'll call him yeah exactly yeah, we'll call him he'll listen to us oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: And let's talk a little bit about your style, Robert, because you have a you have a definite style, and it comes through really well in your images. One of the things, for example, that I that I noticed right away, just paging through your portfolio, is your use of color. How do you get such awesome color on location? Are you bringing gels, or do you look for you know s- specific backgrounds, and how does that work?
0: Well, yeah, you're a little bit of everything. You're always looking for a specific background. Uh, that's that's half the battle. If you can shoot at the right time of day. You know, underexposed light, or shoot it dead on, or slightly underexposing it. Sometimes a stop underexposing it, you can get some really cool colors. And been fortunate that you know, if you do enough of these, you'll you'll eventually catch guys at the right time of day. I've done a ton of shoots at high noon. Also, you don't see those in the portfolio. I don't put them on the website or anything. <laughs> but we we all have to do those too, and those don't always turn out great. But um, you know, it it helps being able to do that. If you get the subject in the shade, that's a big thing with me, if you can shade them somehow, or even if it's with your own softbox, just to so that your shadow side goes shadow side and, and your lid side is lit, and you don't end up with contamination from the sunlight and stuff on your subject, it'll make your colors pop a little bit more, and I almost always gel the lights with CTO gels. As far as the color, the real punchy color, um, I shot Velvia for a long time, and it doesn't work on everybody, but... On athletes, it worked pretty well. I mean, I wasn't shooting, you know, Natalie Portman and Michelle Pfeiffer. I was shooting a lot of Latin guys, a lot of African-American guys. And for some reason, Velvia with, you know, a half CTO gel on it looks really good on, on people with darker skin. Hmm. And it also makes your colors in your skies and your blues and your sunsets and all that stuff really pop out also.
1: Are you still shooting film or have you gone No, there? I
0: haven't shot film in probably a year and a half. Close to two years I guess I shoot with the a DS now the Canon DS Mark II
1: okay so how do you how do you uh, achieve that same effect now Are you, is, it, is it in post-processing or do you do you have some tricks to share in, in that area too I
0: still I still gel things the same way I still try to do everything the same way I think I'm a little sloppier than I used to be <laughs> because I know it can sort of be fixed a little bit but I think it helps having shot film and knowing what the colors do and what it should look like and trying to achieve that with your digital files was important without whacking it out so much that you get banding or other weird saturation stuff going on.
1: Right. Now, just for our listeners, you mentioned um, CTO gels. Uh Uh, Can you be a little more specific about how you use them on your lights and what their purpose is?
0: Yeah. uh, CTOs are for converting daylight sources to tungsten. So back when people used to shoot tungsten film and things like that or on movie sets they'll use these sometimes with with uh, hmis and things like that basically they come in one eighth one fourth one half etc all the way up to a full cto a full conversion to tungsten you know i almost always use at least a quarter and then on people with darker skin i'll often use a half and if it's somebody with really pale skin like i said a, a lily white actress or something you wouldn't want to do this but on on some of these guys with you know colorful uniforms and they've got darker skin it can look really good
1: well do you use gels in combinations with soft boxes ever or is
0: it usually accent lights and background lights do i use gels in the softbox? yeah yeah the the tungsten cto gels would always be inside the softbox, right around the light source okay just taped in there with gaffer tape or whatever i use color gels on background i used to say i'm the expert at shooting guys in bathrooms because i for years you'd go into a uh, training facility somewhere and they'd say oh yeah you've got 10 minutes with name the athlete and you've got this to work with right here and it would be a locker room with a bathroom next to it and go in there and throw a blue gel on the wall and try to make a picture out of it because it's either high noon or it's raining outside (laughs) Um, that happens a lot so there's Lots of pictures I've made in bathrooms.
2: <laughs> now, a lot of the photographers that we speak with on the show, they'll either say that they either use their light meter religiously or that they don't know if it, if the battery's even working it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Where what do, do I you find on
0: that? I used to use it absolutely religiously because I didn't shoot a whole lot of Polaroids, and that sounds crazy because I think most people did, but I, I knew my films really well, and I knew you know, my exposures and everything pretty well and and could sort of pre-visualize stuff. We also used to snip film all the time, so you had that to work with. But I could usually nail it pretty close, and then occasionally we'd push something a third or pull it, you know, a third or something like that. But, yeah, I used to use it a lot. Now it's digital. uh, You've essentially got a Polaroid that you can look at every other frame and and, uh, check and see what you're doing. And I'll be real honest, I don't use it quite as much as I used to. There is a new meter, though. A guy at Photo Expo was telling me about it, the... um, that group rep that handles saconic i'd like to get my hands on one of those because it supposedly you can store three different cameras in it and the parameters that they all each chip is different in every digital camera or something like that and you can actually store all this information in there and know what the parameters are specifically for your camera and it hooks with a USB cable up to your computer and all this kind of stuff and wow. it I sounds th- interesting it sounds like a neat idea so I, I think we were looking at that
1: cool. one up at photo Plus too, weren't we Bill? they do seem really cool so you don't use it as much as you used to?
0: no I don't I, I should I feel like a bad
1: person for that <laughs> well it, the images in the end is what it's the most important and, and your images speak for themselves I noticed that you use the sky in a lot of your shots, um, uh-huh. which is really it's really cool. Do you use a lot of low camera angles and things like that, or how, what's? Yeah,
0: I do, and I, I get beat up about it with my colleagues and stuff. They they kid me about it that I don't shoot too many blue skies. But I think a long time ago I was just ingrained into my head that you should try to clean up your backgrounds and stuff when you're shooting somebody. And and a lot of times when there's no interesting you know walls or anything else to work with you're not up high on something, the easiest thing to do is to bend your knees and to get down lower and to really clean up the backgrounds and you can get rid of light poles that way and all sorts of stuff. And so I just started doing that and I I probably, it's a crutch that I probably use too often.
1: Well, I think it looks great. And there's some really neat shots that you have because of that, especially with some of the sports guys, you know, just having them in the air with a with a ball in their hand and stuff like that is pretty cool. I did have a question. If, if You mentioned time of day. And when you're using the sky like that, is there a particular slot, you know, like a sweet spot in the day where you like to grab that sky and use it for a major design element in your shot?
0: Gosh, if I could get everybody to show up, you know, 30 minutes before sunset, it'd be a wonderful world, but it it doesn't happen like that. So, you know, that's not not the way the world works. So sometimes you're you're shooting at 1 in the afternoon or noon or something like that, and you've just got to really overpower that sky. Hit them with 2,000 watt seconds or 4,000 watt seconds, and and bring it, bring the blue way down, or silhouette the buildings, or whatever you have to do.
1: Okay, so you're with your shutter speed, you're reducing the amount of light that the the sky or the sunlight's providing, and trying to overpower the strobe.
0: Correct, and and having the person in the shade, you know, helps that too. Okay. The best thing I ever heard. One of my good friends said this one time. There are two exposures for every picture. There's background exposure and there's the subject exposure. And if you think of your skies just like you would a piece of background paper, it helps get your head around that. You know, So if you think about establishing that background exposure first, showing up, figuring out what your highest shutter speed is, if it's broad daylight, and then trying to figure out what you need to match that sky and then what you need to underexpose that sky, then you know where your strobe should be.
2: That makes sense. That's an interesting way to work on huh? it, get the scene set up and then work around the uh, the highlight of it.
0: Right. And then, you know, what I used to do, and I, I guess I still do it fun, but when we shot film, I really did it, is, you know, come up with that base exposure where the sky is F11 at 125 or something, Then I would bracket the shutter at two fifty, one twenty five, sixty, 125, back and forth and back and forth and get some skies that were brighter and some that were darker and some that were dead-on. And then when you ran your clips, you could look at it and go, oh, I like the sky at 250 or whatever, and your strobe exposure stayed the same on all those.
1: Okay, that's cool. Now, it, it looks like you have some images in your portfolio, too, that were in the studio. Do you still shoot in the studio much?
0: Um, most of the time, if we do a stu- what looks like a studio picture, it's usually done either at a team's training facility or in a hotel room or something like that. It's, it's rarely a real studio. I don't get to actually rent studios very often because it's hard to get these guys to show up at a studio. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you usually have to bring the studio to them.
1: That's cool. They look great. I like the one you have on the black background
0: with Dale Earnhardt as well. That's a really neat image. Yeah, I mean, that was shot at a little press building that's in the middle of the racetrack with a backdrop and just set up. Wow. Wow. You know, a lot of these are that way. You have to bring the studio to them if you want a studio-type picture because these guys aren't going to drive half an hour or an hour or whatever to go into a city and show up at a studio. Absolutely. Unless you're Annie woods or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Do you have assistance with you at all, or do you? is it just one-man show usually?
0: like I said, when I did the Lumadine thing for about the first four years, I tried to do everything by myself. And I just had these little Lumadine strobes and little small soft boxes. And I think my biggest soft box was like that 30 by 40. And I did lots of portraits that way and it worked fine. But I finally got tired of my light stands blowing over and lights crashing. And I I figured out, I actually made a, this is going to sound really psycho, but I actually made a journal of all the portrait sheets and what went right and what went wrong on all of them just to kind of learn from and um, i traced almost every mistake that had been made i mean there were lots of mistakes but um almost every one of them could have been alleviated from having an assistant so i just finally said okay i'm not, not going to try to do this by myself anymore I'll, I'll hire an assistant every time and it's really helped it, it really does help if it's as simple as a light stand blowing over or if it's as Complex is you know seeing something that you didn't see and pointing it out to you or whatever you know.
2: Looking through your gallery, you get a lot of great expressions on some of these guys. Now, a lot of these guys are not professional models. or um, most of the ones that I'm looking at are athletes here? Mm-hmm. How do you coax those sorts of reactions out of them?
0: Uh, take my shirt off. No, um, <laughs> they're. Um... <laughs> I would get a whole other reaction. <laughs> You just—I uh, mean—you just talk to them. I mean, you try to. It's—it's it's hard to develop any kind of rapport with people when you've got five minutes with them. It's pretty much all business. I mean, there's very few of these guys that would probably know me from anybody if they met me on the street, you know, because you've literally got just such a small amount of time with them. So you just try to explain the idea and what you're going for, and and um, have them do the expression that you're trying to get them to do. Or sometimes I've had a few of them do it on their own without any prompting <laughs> sometimes that happens but uh like with Warren Sap, you know in the water you know we were telling him hey scream at the camera look mean do this do that you know so that's cool uh, you coach him a little bit on that stuff and some of the jumping things they pretty much have to be doing that or it looks too stoic you know it looks weird to be jumping in the air and have your mouth closed and be looking straight ahead you, you almost need something going on with their face so
2: I love the simple use of props that you have like uh, there's some of them with the uh, yellow rose or the, the barbed wires. It's like you've taken your philosophy of the backgrounds of keeping those simple as well as uh, keeping the props simple. And...
0: Because we don't have budgets. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it works for some great images, I'll tell you that.
1: How do you prepare for some of these location shoots? Is it gear selection or do you do any scouting of, of the locations, look for backgrounds, or do you just...
0: Again, it's kind of what what can you get away with or what can you do? Um, we we try to start with an idea and sometimes there is a specific idea, sometimes there it's go get a nice picture of this guy for a cover and it's really simple. But if there's some context to the story or whatever he's known for that sort of thing it helps. And then you try to get out to whatever city it is, you know, a day early and look around and try to find a good spot to shoot the picture if it's if you're not being limited to the team's training facility or wherever the guy is if it's his house or whatever it is and then you try to make arrangements to to shoot him someplace really cool i mean um a good friend of mine uh andy Haight, who works in used to be a sports photographer, works in san diego now at the paper i was visiting him before the ladanian thomason shoot and the headline we already had the headline written pretty much he was a top player of our top 100 issue and san diego's a navy town and we were looking around and boom there's aircraft carriers and stuff and and uh andy's like you know would it be great if you got him on a battleship? And I'm like, how about that aircraft carrier over there? And he was nice enough to help me, and we made some phone calls, and, and um, we got Ladanian on an aircraft carrier You know, the next day. We couldn't believe it, but it happened. Wow. So sometimes you just have to ask, and people oftentimes are willing to help you out. But The biggest problem isn't necessarily the athlete. It's sometimes just convincing the, the team PR guy that it's not going to take much time and it's going to be easy to pull off and... and nobody's going to get hurt and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, A lot of times the athlete, once they get there, they see how cool it looks or whatever. They're like, wow, I'm going to look cool. This is great. But the problem is the people that you have to go to, you know, in between and their other commitments and things like that, trying to get them out there to do something different. The easiest thing for everybody is, you know, for you to show up and hang up a backdrop in their racquetball court at their training facility and spend five minutes shooting a headshot. You know, that's, that's what they would like you to do. But you have to kind of push them all the time to do a little bit more than that
1: (laughs) so you're talking them into bigger shots and stuff like that
0: you try to um you don't get them all the time but you try to there's some really good advice that a friend of mine told me one time he he said you know you've really got to cover your tail and this kind of stuff you've got to think of all the different ways it could go and have your light set up ahead of time have everything tweaked have your polaroid shot and all that kind of stuff so when the guy steps in you're ready to go and and you're not wasting his time if you're stumbling around and moving lights and changing you know looking for your sync cord and stuff like that then you're going to lose them but if you if they show up you tell them what you need them to do you show them the polaroid or the back of the digital camera and show them that you know you're confident in what you're trying to do then you can usually get them on board pretty quickly and and uh, complete the shoot and the other thing i do is i'm really pretty good i think about not doing the just one more roll thing i've watched a lot of photographers do that and and they get somebody famous in front of them and they think oh, i've got to just milk this for another minute another minute another minute and they keep on and keep on and they're shooting the same picture right you know once you got it you got it you gotta let that guy go because it, i mean in in my business you're gonna see that guy again you know there was a time where i shot Derek jeter i think four times in four years you know so you're gonna run into him you're gonna run into him again and uh you want him to remember that you were the guy that was easy to work with.
1: That makes sense. So, and if they if they're not inconvenienced and they actually have fun, then they'll be willing to sit for you again.
0: You hope so. Like I said, I'm not sure that any of them would remember right. any of us, but <laughs> 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 you, you try to make it um, at least at least they're not going to remember you as don't ever let that guy. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, you don't want, you don't want that happening. I send them prints afterwards, and you know follow up with the PR guys and things like that. So.
2: I was going to say, that would be a sure way to get an expression that you don't want. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, that's <Exactly>. right.
0: <laughs> When
1: you're getting ready for a location sheet like that, in terms of equipment selection, you told us the light modifiers and things like that that you favor, but is there anything else in your gear bag that you consider to be essential?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm carrying a lot of gear right now, <laughs> <laughs> more, than I used, more than I used to. Uh, essential, Cinefoil. Nice. I carry a lot of Cinefoil. And uh, I don't carry barn doors, I don't carry snoots, but I'll use cinefoil to make all sorts of things. And uh, you guys know what that is, the black black aluminum foil? Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. uh, I use it a lot, Um, obviously all the gels, a lot of gaffer tape. I have, you know, lots of big stands and things, but I always have one that's like steel, big, super heavy-duty stand that, that the big giant softbox goes on, and you hope you know, either with a pack on it or with sandbags on it that it won't blow over. Right. <laughs> I've got all kinds of funky things. I've got some little ceiling clamps that go on ceiling tiles where you can hang lights off a ceiling. I carry tools. I carry all sorts of weird things to repair all the different softbox rings and all that sort of stuff on the spot.
1: So. Are you normally attached to your lights by a sync cord or you use a, a particular brand of wireless triggers?
0: Um, I use pocket wizards, yeah, but um, I'd I say it's about half and half. If it's just me and one guy... And, you know, a softbox pretty close. I'll, I'll usually use uh, just a sync cord because it's super reliable and it's right there. And, you know, to worry about anybody, you know, hitting it and knocking on the wrong channel. But there are pictures you can make with pocket wizards you can't make otherwise. I mean, right. I had to shoot a picture the other day um, for an annual report and it was in a hospital and we had a light, you know, 100 feet away down in, in another hallway. And there's just no way you can do that with cords. So they're. Handy times where you, where they work really really well. It
1: strikes me as interesting that the sports photography is probably pretty similar to uh, some of your executives and things like that in terms of how much time you have with them and that sort of thing for
0: annual reports. It's it's really similar. It's, I wish uh, more clients could figure that out. <laughs> it's, but it is really similar. Um, it's it's being prepared and it's you know having it figured out ahead of time and scoped and knowing what you're going to do and kind of almost choreographed, you know? It's like, okay, we're going to shoot this for, you know, I used to do it by rolls. Okay, I'm going to shoot a roll and a half of this, then I'm going to shoot this, then I'm going to move it to here, then we're going to move them over here. And, and there's lights set up in every spot. I mean, I'm not, okay, I don't have the subject standing around while I'm moving lights and stuff. They're they're literally going from spot to spot and we're we're shooting fast and we get them out of there in just no time, you know? So with the CEO, it's the same way. You can't have them sitting around or they get bored and they're going to think you're incompetent, you right. know, so uh, you don't want that happening. So if it takes, you know, having more lights there, if even if you have to go rent them or something, you've you've got to, you know, have enough to cover all your stuff.
1: That's interesting. So you'll have, like, multiple setups just in different locations that you've chosen.
0: Correct. Yeah, I used to, you know, even with the little tiny Limadon kit, I would look for spots where I could get two completely different pictures out of, you know, what little lighting gear i had you know it's like okay there's a good masonry wall over here and there's a sky over here and all i have to do is turn the softbox you know 180 degrees and i get both pictures and i can move the guy five feet and do this you know that's cool i would i would look for things where i could you know knock two pictures out in just no time so i, I still do that but it helps if you have more lights so you can actually set different sets of lights up and have them ready to go
2: that's pretty good. We should set some assignments up for our Flickr group uh, members and tell them, you know, give them a time frame and say, all right, knock as many portraits out as you can. Yeah. and they all look different.
1: <laughs> or how well, how many images can you get
0: without moving your softbox stand? <laughs> it it got really crazy. That that LeBron picture that's on there. We actually had him on a picture day, and the, the worst thing in the world is to tell a photographer, oh, you've got to shoot some athlete on picture day because picture day at a team, you know, for baseball or for basketball or football or whatever. They basically run all the players through and they do all the little PSAs where they talk to the video camera that you see in the stadium, you know, don't do drugs. And, you know, this is sponsored by so-and-so Chevrolet and all that. They do all that kind of stuff. And then they go through and they do their mug shots for whatever league they're in. They do a shot for the AP. They do all these different things. And if you get scheduled to shoot them, on a picture day, it's just like the worst thing ever <laughs> uh, because they're they're going to so many different spots and you've got no time to deal with them. But if you get somebody really high profile like LeBron. Sometimes that's the only way you're going to get them. And so we literally had about three and a half, four minutes to shoot him, wow. and set up a giant backdrop. And we did, I think, four or five sets of separate sets of uh, packs of dynamite and labeled everything and had it all on the same channel and basically i had an assistant turn packs on and off while he stood in (laughs) the spot and moved slightly and we got a bunch of different looks out of him in, in three and a half four minutes you know from a from a silhouette with a red background to the lighting you see there to a shot with his coach with one big softbox, to all sorts of different things and and we literally did it just by turning packs on and off and just having our act together ahead of time
1: that's amazing it takes a lot of planning, then, that sounds like. That's really cool.
0: Having having it all set up right around his head, you know?
2: <laughs> right. So now when you're talking about, like, the speed of your shoots, um, does that translate to your workflow as well? Do you shoot in
0: RAW or JPEG? No, every everything's RAW. Everything's RAW. Yeah, I do everything in RAW. I can't imagine doing lighting stuff, and, and, and you know, I know photojournalists, newspapers and things, they have to do JPEG for time constraints, but... I can't imagine doing portraits and stuff and not doing them in, in Raw.
1: what is like a typical post process like for you? What kind of software do you use and like what portion of time is that for each image? Um, it's more time
0: than I would like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually I was actually thinking about this the other day. It was it was nice, you know, dropping your film and going to lunch and coming back to look at the snips and then going to a bookstore and then picking up your film and sticking it in a FedEx <laughs> It was actually easier then. But uh, no, uh, I mean, the control is good and, and shooting digital is wonderful in a lot of ways, but I am spending tons of time now sitting in front of a computer monitor. I probably spend more time just cleaning up dust and making things look perfect than, than anything else. If you shoot these skies and you do them with a wide-angle lens and you do it at F-16 or F-11 or something, you're going to have this... With that camera, that sixteen point seven megapixel camera, you're going to have so many dust spots, no matter what you do, wow. that it's just unbelievable how much time I spend cleaning things. <laughs> yeah, I find that a lot with my wide angle lens as well. Yeah, so it's it's like oh, I'm going to shoot everything long at five six now because I don't get dust. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, it's it's such a part of what I do shooting. You know, I used to use the Hasselblad forty just all the time. Now it's wide lenses on these frame digital and and yeah you spend a lot of time retouching i think not retouching like making people look like pinups or anything weird (laughs) like that but just just retouching to make it look right you know
1: just cleaning things up and
0: cleaning things up yeah and making sure blacks are black and stuff like that that's cool if
1: you were going to give advice to someone who was was interested in doing the kind of location or sports photography that you do what would what would be your advice to help them get started
0: um Honestly, the best thing in the world that I did, I think, was going to work at a newspaper. It's going to sound nutty to some people because I know a lot of people go into this business by assisting or whatever, but uh, being able to shoot your own assignments you know, five, six times a day at a small paper and having to figure out lighting on your own and having to figure out assignments and dealing with people one-on-one all the time. and you know, I started out very, very shy. I think I still am in a lot of ways, but but, you know, you get to the point where you can look somebody in the eye and, and tell them what you need and that sort of thing. It was just extremely helpful. I, I can't imagine doing it another way. I think my newspaper career was kind of cut short because of the paper closing down and I ended up in sports. But there's a lot of great photographers that have started out, you know, as photojournalists, and I think that really helped. It's almost a trial by fire of sorts. Yeah, it kind of is. And there's some freedom there, too. You know, you're, I know some guys that go straight from assisting to doing corporate jobs or ad jobs, and somebody's telling them exactly how to shoot to a comp, and and they never get to see what they're capable of right. because they've never had the freedom to do what they want to do. And, and in a newspaper environment, at least, you know, there are some constraints. Obviously, you need to try to tell the story, but, but you can use your creativity to tell the story and, and do it the way you want to, and I think that really helps. Um,
1: well, I was going to ask about a couple of specific images in your business portfolio, if, if we can, for a minute. Sure. I was just curious, uh, and you don't have to give away all of your secrets, but some of these are really interesting. I'm really curious how you made the image, like the one of uh, Fred Fowler. Okay. It's, uh, it's got a blue circle, and he's sort of at the end of some sort of tube.
0: Yeah. The story there was that he was um, sw- basically Duke Energy was spinning off portion of their company the pipeline division i guess and they were going to call it something else and so it was a portrait of him for a business magazine okay and uh we had you know five minutes in his office nothing to speak of no no duke logos on the wall nothing to work with and so i did, went to home depot and i bought a bunch of different uh aluminum pipes you know like you would see um dryer duct work and things like that and i just showed up with a bunch of them and we backlit him with the blue, and put a grid spot on his face, and then, you know, I put the camera inside the ductwork, and just tried to do some different things with it. That is cool. Tried to make it look like a pipeline.
1: So you had seen his office then ahead of time, I guess?
0: No, I hadn't. Oh wow! I just, I just, I just know what a, I know what a boardroom office looks <laughs> like. <laughs> <and cool>. there's, <laughs> there's never much to work with. So. That's amazing. You know, and it's one of those things where you know it'd be great if you could get all these guys to go out. On location to a real pipeline or something, but they're not always going to do that.
1: So. That's cool. There, there's another one that I had a question similar. You have an image. All it's labeled is that it's an Internet CEO. It sort of looks like... Yeah, somebody. actually,
0: that's an old one. That's really old. I should take that down. But There was a guy in Austin during the kind of dot-com boom or whatever, and that was at his office, and there was, again, really nothing to work with there. But he had a, a beveled glass door, almost like you would see on someone's house, you know, where it's got all sorts of bevels, doing swirly designs and stars and different things. It's almost like using a Coke and filter. You know, I put him on one side of the door, and I got on the other side of the door and focused on him through one of the little round things, and and it sort of distorted the rest of him like that. Beveled glass doors are fun. Fun to play with.
1: <laughs> it sounds like the moral of the story is you just sort of improvise. I mean, it's, you're the, the master improviser. You do a lot
0: of times. Uh, you, you try to go in, I mean, it's always better to have an idea and to have some context and, you know, again, it's the journalist part coming out, you know, you want your your picture to say something and to uh, have some content, you know, if it's, you know, you're shooting for a movie poster you want to get the, gist of what it is just by looking at it it's the same with magazine photography or newspapers or anything else i think you want the photos to communicate not just look cool just to look cool you know right Uh, in a perfect in a perfect world you do both things but it doesn't always happen well
1: i think you're very very
0: good at it and (laughs) really and i i
1: I think our listeners are really going to appreciate hearing some of the stories behind some of these images and and your philosophy for location portraiture and i thank you for hanging out with us tonight
0: you bet. Anytime.
1: And, of course, folks can check out your portfolio at your website, which we'll provide links to in the show notes. You can get there at uh, robertsale.com. That's Robert, com. Robert, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the Internet. Be sure to check out the show notes at studiolighting.net. For the things that we talked about on today's show. And there you can also find links about our photography and keep up with the stuff that we've been shooting. And don't forget you can send
2: us feedback or questions about the show to studio lighting at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer those questions on the show or in the lighting questions section on Studiolighting.net. You can also get feedback on your photography in our
1: Flickr group, which is at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source. Till next time. Take care. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocast Network. Don't be so meek. I will not be meek. What does meek mean anyway? Bashful? Meek? It's kind of wimpy. Like
2: humble? Bashful? Um. Or just like timid? See, I was thinking it was timid. Uh, let's see. Meek. Showing patience and humility. Gentle. Easily imposed on submissive. Okay. Easily managed or handled. Docile. I don't mind the humble part. Yeah, that's good. All right. Very shy. Compliant. See, yeah. Timid. Right. Okay. I'll see what I can do. Humble in spirit or manner. (laughs) Suggested retiring mildness or even coward submissiveness. Oh, my goodness. Very docile. That is not manly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, the meek shall inherit the earth.
1: That's true. That's always good. Okay, your turn. Okay, you
2: ready? I'm ready. Did you look up (laughs) (laughs) self-centered? Yeah, it had my picture. Okay. It it went to my Flickr profile.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right.